Hey everyone, thanks for joining us again. I am Catherine Druckmann, and Doc Searles and I are talking again to Kyle Rankin, who is the Chief Security Officer at Purism, a company that I hope you've all heard of. Um, and I think one of the things we're going to talk about today um, is based on actually a blog post that Kyle wrote. Uh, you can check it out over on the Purism blog. But we're talking about this idea of convergence and, and, you know, and what it means and, and, and why we want it, really. So um, with that in mind, I think I'm just going to go ahead and, and hand it over to Kyle to tell us a little bit more about what he had in mind when he wrote his blog post. Yeah, yeah. So this word, the word convergence, which maybe is not the best word for for what we're talking about. Maybe it is. I'm not sure. But but there's a, it's at least a word that people use to mean a couple of different things and have used it over the years to describe essentially sort of this merging of your desktop or laptop computer with uh, with a mobile computer. Uh, and it you know it started early on with this recognition that. Phones were getting more, I mean, this is, you know, a decade ago, that phones were getting more and more powerful and able to do more and more things, and that at some point would have the horsepower to replace um, your, average, your average computer that you would use on a desktop. And then the question then is, well, if it has the horsepower, um, what, you know, if it has the horsepower, then what's missing? And the blog post, I, I've seen a lot of people, there's a lot of products out there you can get now that sort of talk about promising convergence. There's a lot of, for example, laptop docs that you can use to plug into a, a phone and have the phone screen show up on your laptop. And they always, you know, and they're marketed as convergence devices. And so, you know, at, it, I wrote this blog post because, you know, I've, I've been in this market for someone who, uh, you know, on the, on the customer side of someone who's wanted, desperately wanted a convergence device for ten, over a decade, at least, if not longer than that and continually get disappointed because everyone that's marketing this is marketing something that's not what we were promised it would be essentially sort of like, and I ended up sort of defining what, what I'm looking for and what I think a lot of people were sold as real convergence. Um, and so the idea is taking your desktop computer and putting it in your pocket. So at your desk, it's this device, this computer's plugged into a monitor and a, and a keyboard and a mouse and you use it like your desktop, all of your regular desktop applications are there. And then you leave your desk and unplug it and put it in your pocket. And at that point, it, it acts like a phone. You can take phone calls. You can uh, still use applications and access your, your songs and do all of the things, your files. All of that's there in your pocket, and you just use it on a smaller screen. Then you get home, and maybe you plug it back into a, def a desktop monitor, or you maybe plug it into a laptop dock. Um, and either way, all of your applications and your files are still still there. And the idea is all of your stuff is with you in person. It's not, it's not up on the cloud and you're just accessing it through three different devices in a cloud environment, but it's, it's all the same computer. Uh, and, you know, that was something I wanted a long time ago when, when even before the Nokia N900 came out, but I did a review for Linux Journal on that a long time ago too. And it, it almost had that promise where you could see if, I, if only I had a way to get this little Linux computer to connect to a monitor, maybe I would have this one computer to rule them all that I always had with me. Um, I mean, even to the point I talk about this in the article where I bought a laptop dock uh, that was uh, sold for Droid, like Motorola devices. They had this, they had sort of an idea behind convergence that I kind of call fake convergence as well, where the idea is 
you take a phone and just make the screen bigger, essentially. Or you have two devices. You have essentially when your phone is plugged into a desktop, you have a completely different OS and a completely different desktop environment that you run. And there's a big thick wall in between your files on the two different devices. Um, so yeah, I tried that out years ago and was disappointed and, and ended up not using it. Even though I had a laptop dock, I could dock my phone at the time a Droid 4 into it um, and even access Linux in a VM. I had a whole, a whole cool looking green on black Linux desktop and it, it just didn't work because the Linux desktop was in this VM that was completely isolated from the rest of the phone. When I had the phone in my pocket in phone mode, I couldn't access any of those same programs because they're in this little tiny VM. Uh, so I had the regular Android device. Um, and you, you know, you fast forward now to today and there's still now, there's been a resurgence of interest in getting laptop docs. But when you plug a phone into them, usually you just have Android go into tablet mode. So you, you know, you're using these apps that were designed to be on a phone that they've just stretched out and maybe you, you get a little, you get more screen real estate, but it's not necessarily, it's not like using it as a desktop computer. Most people end up not necessarily using it that way. Uh, and it's, you know, but it's sold as this one computer to rule them all. So anyway, I, I ended up, I feel like I needed to write about it because this is the, the real version of this sort of like the promise of convergence was, is something that we've, we designed the Libram 5.4 from the beginning and, and to do it correctly, the reason that in the past, even though people have wanted this for a decade, I think it's failed, is that everyone says they're offering the real thing. And then what you end up with is a phone with a bigger screen. Uh, when what you want is the opposite. You want a desktop with, that works on a smaller screen. And so, but it takes a lot of effort to get that. It's not just about having Linux run on a small device. Android already does that. And it's not about having it hook up to a monitor. Android already does that. It has to do with, do I have a desktop uh, OS that behaves like a desktop OS when it's plugged in and used like a desktop? And does that still work uh, when you, when you, shrink it down to a small screen. So in our case, we started with the desktop and then realized, well, to make this work, we have to have libraries that let you take an existing application that already runs on the desktop and, and make it easy to define what it does when you shrink it down to a smaller screen, just like um, adaptive web apps did you know, over a decade ago. They had this problem because everyone was browsing the web from their phones and websites were designed for a 1040 by 768 screen. and and it just looked awful, you know, when you tried to, it would, it would scroll off half of the web browser on your phone. Um, and eventually designers realized the value in having a, a website that adapted to the screen size, whether it was a small phone screen, a regular desktop, or someone had a 4K screen, you didn't end up with an ugly looking site. It, it figured it out and, re, and, and resized accordingly. Um, so we're just basically seeking to do the same thing with desktop applications. Um, and so we have libraries that do that and started working on getting all of these different, in particular, GNOME applications to behave well when they've shrunk it down. So let's talk a little bit about like how, how others handle this. So, 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 you know, let's say you are an Apple customer. You, I mean, you don't have the option to plug your iPhone into a monitor and use it as a computer, obviously, but, but, you know, I, when we, we talked about this, when we first started talking about this, I thought about, well, so how do other technology companies address this to consumers, address the need, let's say, to, to share everything? So the obvious sort of mainstream answer is, you know, having 
cloud storage and, and sharing your documents and and um, Apple's taken it further like you literally have like you can you know if you're browsing a website on a phone you can open it on your lap on your other laptop instantly you can even share the clipboard but but can you talk a little bit about like I mean it seems like there are obvious security implications to that like why, why do we want it all on one device and why is that a better solution who is the target audience for that versus others versus other solutions yeah so for us the the whole focus of pretty much all of our design decisions have to do with is this giving the end user the maximum amount of control and freedom with the device that we can and so that there's a reason that a lot of that, for example, on Android devices, pretty much all avenues point you towards storing data on the cloud. If you want to back up your device so that if it, you know, when you drop it in, it shatters in a million pieces, you can buy a new phone and restore. It's all cloud. It, there's, it, it, it's increasingly hard without rooting the device to back it up locally, um, to backing, backing everything up and then being able to restore it without using the cloud. And that's, there's a vested interest there because it also makes it difficult if, if you're an Android user to switch over to an iPhone and have everything copy over and vice versa. The same thing's true uh, because your, your data is kind of yours, but it's really, you're sort of, you're housing it somewhere else and you're dependent upon that service uh, existing. And just like with all cloud services like that. And of course these companies are larger. So you would hope that those services stay around. Uh, but you, but in any case, our, idea is what you really want is the data with you want if the, you want maximum control over your data then you want it with you at all times you don't necessarily you don't need to have a copy of it stored elsewhere you can make your own backups of course if you want but instead of having to have a network connection and having to pull everything down from someone else's cloud you can have all of your documents and all of your things with you um, on your person and even have in, and really focus on having a nice secure device in your pocket. Uh, and it's, that's fully under your control. So there's no concern about, you know, I mean, we've seen many cases where, for example, law enforcement will, if someone, if someone allegedly commits a crime and they want to in, investigate them, what they will do is get a subpoena and go to iCloud. And of course the user, despite all of the protections perhaps on their iPhone, they store all of their documents in iCloud and all of their information and it's not encrypted or anything. And so they have everything right there. Um, and so there to, to me, at least, if you want the full amount of control over your, your information and the most, the highest security over it, it's better if you have control of it on your own device. So it, it seems to me that, I mean, what you're talking about here, there are a couple of different angles on it that I, I really like. One is, we live a digital life now and we're living it in our various devices. And right now for most people, those are fairly disconnected. What's on your, uh, and independently, even if you use, uh, you know, Apple's iCloud there, um, it's shattered. Your, your life is, you know, some of it's on the phone, some of it's on the watch, some of it's on this laptop, some of it's on that desktop. Um, it's, but it's not, and it's not especially yours. I mean, there's, there's no attempt to integrate it, which to me, integration is maybe a better word that converge, but maybe there's not a right one there. But I like the idea behind this being your life and your devices, and there should be, uh, you know, they should all they should all be 
you know, parts of your life, you know, it's, it's kind of, I mean, right now it's kind of like my arm doesn't work with my leg, you know, right. uh, But we're digital beings now and we live online as well as on earth. And we get online and we operate online with multiple devices and they should all be extensions of ourselves that are coherent. And, uh, and I think I may be wrong. Are are you, is purism the only one really working on it from that sensibility? We pretty much are. Most people, most of the other, most other companies are approaching it. Now there are, I I think behind the scenes, there are R and D projects by both Google and Apple to slowly merge their mobile OSs and their, and their desktop or laptop OSs. Uh, but this is a long-term project. You start, you, you see, you hear hints about it every now and then. But I mean, the fundamental problem that they have right now is the iOS on an iPhone isn't the same as Mac OS on a MacBook, right? They're completely different operating systems. And to write an application for one or the other, you're writing an application for one or the other. You're, you're not writing an application for even Macs. You know, you have to decide which platform. Um, and the same goes for a Chromebook versus an Android phone. You know, those are completely different operating systems. And while I'm sure behind the scenes, and perhaps this is part of um, Apple's push, push to create their own silicon that's ARM-based, is to try to merge all of that into one operating system eventually, uh, they, they are years away from it. And this is something, you know, I think this is something that we are definitely trailblazing here. Because even, even on the pretty small Linux mobile um, market, what you see is this, this fragmentation where um, none of the mobile Linux OSs that you hear about are desktop OSs as well. They are sort of like this fragmented, for the, for the most part, I'm sure, you know, if you ever say all of something is a certain way, then someone will find an exception. But the major ones that you hear people talk about when they're talking about, I have Linux on a mobile device, they are, and they're not Android. Uh, you're talking yeah. about a mobile operating system that you couldn't run on a laptop or a desktop necessarily. And an application developer, just like they have to decide, well, do I want to write my application for Mac OS or iOS? They also have to decide, do I want to write my application for a Linux desktop, you know, Ubuntu, Red Hat, Debian, Pure OS, whatever, or do I want to write it for, you know, this mobile OS because it's completely, it's different now, you know, you, so you have to port the application. So our approach is to say, no, if you want to write People ask us, well, how do I get an application on your phone? And the answer is get it running in a Linux desktop. Get it working in PureOS on your laptop and make sure that when you, sh- you drag the corner of the window to a really small size, the size of the phone screen, that it's still usable. That's pretty much it. Uh, and, if, and that's, I mean, so we developed libraries to make that easier um, to make it almost automatic when, this, when the phone screen, when it's small, that smaller, um, widgets and things can move around like you would want them to. But that's essentially it. And so the idea is it's one big platform. So instead of it being fragmented where develop, you know, developers already are you know, living with the hassle of having four or five different platforms to develop for, um, adding another one's not going to help anyone. And so our goal is to say, just develop an application for Linux, for a Linux desktop that also looks good on a small screen and you're done. You know, so you only have one platform to develop for and you cover the mobile use case and the desktop use case. And that's important because what we want, we don't want someone who takes their phone from their desktop and is, you know, using a full, a full screen application. Like say they're checking their email and they're checking their email, they're typing in an email and then, oh, it's time to go. They were listening to their music from Bluetooth headphones. You know, 
we want them to be able to just unplug. They're still listening to their music because it's still on that same device. It's in their pocket. They sit down on the subway or wherever, and they're able to get their phone back out and finish that email now using the touchscreen keyboard. Um, but it's the same exact device, you know, there's no, it's and it's the same exact application. So like when they're running Firefox, for instance, they're running desktop Firefox. Now you can tell it to tell app to tell websites to give you the mobile version if you want. Um, so it works well on the small screen, but you're using, you know, you're not using a port of Firefox for a mobile device. You're using the full thing with all of the add-ons and everything. What I like about this, uh, there are many things I like about it, is is how much that speaks to a sense of what ought to be mine when I'm, you know, working at home or working on the subway or working some other place, rather than I am using this company's app uh, on this company's device, and I have to remember what works with what. And there, and there's also this attachment to the cloud. I know. I mean, with, I mean, Apple made a decision a few years ago that. Uh, uh, your music, if you, let's say you have a whole lot of music and if you have a certain preference, it's living in the cloud. When you, you get in the subway, if you move out of, you know, the, the cell phone cut data coverage that we've lost, that it's gone. It's not yours anymore because it's stored somewhere else. I don't, I don't know how you guys are addressing that kind of thing, but I think the more it seems like this is my seamless experience of an appendage of myself that happens to be a computing thing, the better off we'll be. Well, yeah, I mean, in, in my case, I have, because the phone has a micro SD slot, you can have up to two terabytes of storage in it. And so in my case, I just, I, I don't have that much. I bought, you know, maybe 160 or whatever megabyte or gigabyte, sorry, um, gigabyte uh, micro SD card. And that's enough to store, you know, my local music collection, uh, which I've had forever. And, you know, all, any media I want to have with me, I, you know, any podcasts I want to listen to instead of streaming them all the time. I actually have a local copy. There's, you know, tools like Gpotter, which is this Linux desktop tool that allows you to synchronize podcasts, and, and it works with with YouTube uh, vlogs as well. And and when a new one shows up, it, it detects it and downloads it for me automatically. And I have it right there with me on my device. I don't have to care about cell coverage or my data, you know, data rate and or anything mm -hmm. like that. It's just automatically with me everywhere I go. It's interesting because it seems like you're almost taking the opposite approach to let's say an apple and whereas like i don't know microsoft's maybe somewhere in, in, in the middle i don't know um but yeah like apple you know they announced recently that the ipad os is is like diverging from the phone ios right it's like it's its own it's somewhere in between a laptop and 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 uh, what ios used to be which i think is interesting because it's more specialized and you're going for less specialized, which is, you know, maybe it suits different people, maybe it suits different, different um, purposes. I don't know, it, it's interesting. Whereas the, take the micro, uh, what is it? The Microsoft Surface um, is a, you know, it's a tablet, but it's still just the same windows as you would find on a laptop, or at least I, as I understand it, I don't, don't know. But um, I don't know, interesting. So, but I'm just wondering like, so who, who benefits the most, though, from this? I mean, people who obviously want the control and need the control or want and need the convenience. Well, I, I think the main thing is for people who want to have the same experience and the same, who want, it's definitely more convenient. Uh, but it's for someone who, there's a lot of people who, you know, for example, in my personal case, so I have, I, I'm 
we are probably at this point internally a couple of weeks away from uh, on the Librem 5 phone, uh, outputting, having it to where you can plug it into a display port and the USB hub and all of that and have it output and, and work in this way that we're describing. Um, all of the components work, we're just working on uh, polishing it up and, and having it be in a very user-friendly way. Uh, well, I have one of these uh, uh, laptop docks. In my case, I have one by a company called NextDock, which uh, will, at that point, my goal is to replace my personal laptop. I'm going to do a month-long experiment, and maybe it'll just extend forever, where, you know, where I'm going to, instead of my personal laptop, I'm just going to have my lead from five. And when I need a laptop, I will plug it into the laptop dock and, and use it when I, need, you know, when I need to type with a keyboard in a larger screen. And then when I want it to be a phone, I unplug it and use it as a phone. Uh, I think there was a lot of people who, honestly, their phone is their primary computer. Yeah, and for personal they, use, absolutely. Exactly, for personal use in particular. You know, business use sometimes are specialized applications. Well, also in business use, often, you know, a company will provide you with a, a computer. Uh, you know, a laptop for, for work anyway. But definitely for personal computing, I think this will be where, where we see the most inroads for this type of use because so much of what people use their personal computers for these days, you do on a phone. And a lot of people just use their phone for 90% of it. And then every now and then they, they may go to a personal laptop just because they have something where they need a larger screen. And the reason they do that is only because when their phone is not usable on the larger screen for that, that feature, because when they plug it in, like I said, they're just stretching mm -hmm. this weird phone app that was designed for a small screen onto a big screen. But so, yeah, I think we will see a lot of people who, you know, who they're in particular, their personal computer, they don't necessarily need both a laptop and a phone. They would like to have one device. And considering we are focusing a lot on the longevity of this phone, mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, we're giving lifetime updates on the phone and we're not we're, there's no planned obsolescence with the Librem 5. You know, we intend to support it for the life of the device and give lifetime updates. So the idea is someone can use it. And given how long, you know, Linux desktop computers and laptops last anyway, uh, where on, even on old hardware, they seem, you know, it seems to breathe new life into devices. You know, you could conceivably have someone who uses a Librem 5 phone for years and years and years as their personal computer. Um, maybe plugged into a laptop dock of some kind, or maybe plugged into a monitor, keyboard, and mouse um, if they want to use it that way. That's the minimalism of it is it's very appealing. I can <laughs> I can see uh, yeah that would be I'm anxious. I, I assume you're going to write somewhere about your experiment. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm basically just waiting. I, so just I mean this is to show how sort of cutting edge we are with this at this moment. Maybe a week and a half or two weeks ago, we published a video showing the current Librem 5 outputting to DisplayPort um, uh, as a demonstration. So we had one of our, one of our core developers who's working on that, got it working essentially. Um, so the, and currently, if you look at all of our source code check-ins and the work that our, our team is doing, you'll see a lot of work on the kernel on incorporating USB hub support. So when you, you know, we have one of the, a single USB-C port in the bottom. So if you were to plug that into a hub, it auto detects and does the right thing essentially. Um, so once those two pieces are in place and merged into a, a production kernel for us, uh, then, uh, then we'll, you, can, you should be able to just plug it into whatever device and have it do the right thing. So yeah, at that point, I'm definitely going to be starting my experiment because honestly, I, I've sort of started it anyway without, I, I've 
the only time I use my uh, personal laptop these days is if I want to write a long form email um, and want the extra convenience of the keyboard. I mean, so much of what I would do personally with a computer, I do with my Libra 5 already, you know, listen to podcasts, watch videos, um, browse the web, things like that are already there. And so, you know, I'm mostly sort of achieve that experiment as it is. So it'll just be this extra step uh, to have a screen, a bigger screen and a keyboard. So, so we're, I'm sure you guys are at Purism are looking or at least fantasizing on how, how this expands in the world, you know, what, what groups you're after, what typical customers might be and so forth. What are you, what are you looking at there? How do you grow based on sure, this, this yeah. work in itself? I mean, it's appealing to me, but I'm a little geeky, but you know, what, what, it, where, where does this go? Yeah. So I think we've, we've traditionally, our, our, fir- our first market has always been people who are interested in free software, but we always have, but the company itself sort of sits on three pillars. There's, there's sort of like the freedom group, the privacy group and the security group. And of course there are people, if you drew that Venn diagram, there's a big middle and some of our customers sit in the middle, but there, we also have plenty of customers that pick one of those three and that's their core interest in us. Uh, so with our, you know, when we first announced our laptops, the very first people we marketed to were people who really care about the free software side of things. Uh, but over time, that market, as that market continued to grow, we also expanded into people who care about privacy or security uh, for all of the other features of that product. So I think the phone will probably, if I'm going to you know, put on a prediction hat, uh, I would predict it will probably follow the same lines where we, we get initial interest from people, and we already have. The, the bulk of the interest uh, in our phone um, comes from people who care about the fact that it's running a real Linux desktop operating system um, and runs real Linux applications. Oh, and that's the other thing that's interesting. You know, we will get a lot of requests already with how many apps are on the phone. And one way to answer that would be, well, we have a few that, you know, are small and run on the phone that come in installed out of the box. But another way to say it is we have thousands if you were to have a bigger screen, you know, because they already run all of the applications that are in your standard pure OS laptop um, already run on the phone. It's just, they don't necessarily fit on the small screen. Uh, but in any case, so I think the first inroad will be those people, but then there's also just short already. We are also getting interest from people who they, the OS is less important. They just want it to be usable and have certain features, What they care about, is the privacy and security features of the device. So for example, the hardware kill switches um, and the removable cellular modem and removable Wi-Fi card and, and removable battery even. You know, some people like the modularity of it. Some people like um, the fact that we are going to be supporting it long-term because they're concerned about e-waste and you know, your modern cell phone is on this two-year cycle now where not only, even if it's still running, the, you know, the, the vendor often won't even, will stop giving you updates. So you end up, for is from a security standpoint, you can't patch unless you buy a new phone because they won't ship you new updates after, you know, about two years. And a lot of phones are perfectly usable after that. Um, but you, but because of the OS updates, you end up having to, you know, throw it away. Yeah. I'm wondering if you guys are also thinking in terms of, uh, we were talking about this a little bit earlier before we went on the air. So just if this is air, um, before we went on the wire, uh, mm-hmm. uh, on the glass, what that, we're at a peculiar moment in history right now, right? Where a lot of the tables have been turned over. I mean, uh, the, the metaphor I was using, uh, just experimenting with several of them with, with Catherine was um, uh, 
you know, it's kind of like the earthquakes are happening and the walls of the old castles are coming down and people can escape <laughs> and maybe a lot of them want to escape. But a similar metaphor is, you know, the old, the old playing tables have been turned over as well. I mean, there's, there's like a very different world going on right now. You can't go out or you know, wherever is wearing masks and, you know, school's not happening and sports isn't happening. And, but, you know, everything's in a kind of flux. And I'm wondering if you're looking at that as kind of opportunity and say, wait a minute, who, who else could be interested in this now um, who wasn't before? Uh, or where can we, what are the markets that might be opening up here or just conversations that might be opening up? That's a good point. Now, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, you, everybody's health obsessed right now. And when you talk about health data, that, that brings out the uh, the privacy enthusiast in all of us, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah it, well, and, and we definitely got a huge surge of interest after all of the debacle and concern about um, COVID tracking apps. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, the, you know, in the concern over even if today, there's statements that it won't be, you, you won't be required to install it or use it, that, you know, some, some people didn't necess weren't necessarily assured by being told that, like that wasn't necessarily enough. Uh, there, and, and, and indeed in some countries, it w some of these, those applications were pushed and because the vendors have control of that. You know, vendors can decide what applications you're allowed on your device now. I mean, we've seen that with Apple, even with, with companies as powerful as Google and Facebook having their apps, their internal corporate applications removed from iPhones uh, because they violated an Apple policy. I mean, that's incredible control over a device that's allegedly, you know, Facebook employees device uh, to be able to do that. And that same power in some countries, you know, you can tell someone, no, you must install this application that tracks you in your every movement. And because you can't, you have no control over the operating system, you don't have much say in the matter. It's just, it's installed, you can't remove it, um, and you have to live with it, you know? So once that came out, a lot of people came to us and said, I can't, you know, they, we had so much feedback of, I can't wait until your mass-produced phone is out because they wanted the ability to control when they're tracked and control, you know, when their data is being shared and all of that because they don't have that control right now. Right. I was thinking that, what about companies that, I actually had a conversation earlier today with somebody who worked, has worked for a series of big companies. And there's this sensibility that's changing inside the big companies that is saying, we, we used to want to be in control of everything, but you know what? And, and we are also making life very complicated for our customers by having too many offerings that are too complicated. And, and that makes us dependent on big marketing systems and big CRM systems and big uh, other, you know, identity, security, privacy, it's all very complicated. And, and, but really the easiest thing to do in a way is put as much freedom and responsibility in the hands of both um, employees and customers. The employees are already working at home anyway. They're working on their own hardware and they're working with their own, in their own, on their own connection. And, uh, and, and the customers are, inconvenience by having too many, too many choices from too much, too much marketing crap that's offered, you know, three months free if you do this and then that if you do that, but let's just make things simple. But, uh, but a theme with all of that is that we want people to be free to make their own decisions and do it and do what works right for them. 
that's also consistent with what the company wants to do. The company wants to sell a widget or the company wants to sell insurance or it wants to sell anything. Or in, in the case of you know, the experiences I've had in the last week and when we were just interrupted by one earlier um, with, a, you know, two different cable companies um, and Sirius XM for satellite radio, um, uh, one TV company with Dish, we have that in our house in Santa Barbara, um, all too complicated, you know, and I, and I think if, if you have this sense from either the employee side or the customer side that I'm just dealing with another human being here and we're both kind of independent actors, one of us works for the company, one of us buy something from the company, but can we go at this in a simpler way than we've done before? And I think freedom is a big part of that because an awful lot of what companies have wanted to do is trap both their employees and their customers. And maybe they don't need to do that if they just make a better something. I'm just well, thinking of and that's something that, yeah. well, that's something that I think the pendulum is starting to swing back in that direction. But for example, if you go back 20 years ago, you know, vendor lock-in was considered a really a bad thing and a lot of large companies that were trying it you know that that was pointed out by you know if you're talking about it staff by it staff as a reason maybe not to go with them or you know microsoft in the in the late 90s got a lot of flack and a lot of heat for their vendor lock-in practices as as did companies like oracle and a couple of others giants that are no that are you know still around but not necessarily the same kind of giant throwing their weight around as they used to be uh and largely that's because you know starting around 20 years ago, people started pushing for uh, solutions that were more open, using open standards, using things like TCP IP instead of, you know, right. Microsoft's proprietary, you know, all of that yeah, stuff happened. Yeah, that's actually a path we followed, right? I mean, that's... Yeah. Yeah. And so that happened, but then we've, we've it's been long enough since that, that we now have right. a generation of people who, who don't know why vendor lock-in would be a bad thing. You know, they're, they're not, they haven't right. yet experienced the pain of, wait, what do you mean I have a VCR DVD all-in-one TV and the DVD part broke, but now I'm stuck with the VCR on TV and I can't do anything about it, you know? Uh, yeah, it, it, the assumption is a free market is your choice of captor, right? Who am I going to be captured by? Is it going to be Apple? Yeah. You can go as far as to, you might call Facebook a idea lock-in. <laughs> you know? well, and and I mean, that's why, that's why these cloud services are so are so powerful and why, you know, all of these vendors, their solution points you toward put your data on our servers somewhere because it makes it that much harder. Even if they have some level of export tool, it makes it that much harder for you to get your data back. If you want to switch it, there's, there's a lot of power in network effects and there's a lot of, I mean, that's why you, we all have phones that have six different messaging apps on them is because there's incredible power in, in having all of your friends of one click be use one application. Uh, and it's a big pain to convince everyone to switch over to the next thing, whatever that is. Yeah. And all the messaging apps are, uh, tend to be proprietary. I mean, <clears throat> we kind of missed a window there to make, to liberate that one. We, we, yeah, well, we had one and, and it, what ended up happening was we, we, we were going that way on computers, but then phones came out. And yeah. phones at first were open too because SMS was a universal. I didn't need to know anything about what provider you were using or anything. If I wanted to send my phone, send your phone a message from my phone. Uh, but then because they metered those things back then, uh, there was an, a market opportunity that Apple and others jumped on and said, well, what we'll do is 
if both if you're using our device, if both endpoints are using that our device, our native SMS app will send it over our proprietary network instead and save you the the one cent SMS fee or whatever it was. You know, it won't count for your limit. Yeah. Um, and then yeah. there's a big battle to kill you know you sort of ubiquitous messaging uh, that way. I have everyone you know Android now has you know however many SM apps that want to be your default SMS provider along with their proprietary service. Yeah, I know. I mean, I'm I just like every day I'm dealing with, oh, is that one WhatsApp? And is that one um, Signal, you know, or whatever? I mean, there's, there, there are too many of them. We actually at Linux Journal pushed really hard to um, get Jabber and XMPP as a, be a thing back in the, like the turn of the millennium. It's a long time ago now. I don't know why that didn't, it took to some degree, but then it never matured or I don't know what happened there. It, it took, it took to the point that even Google had a version of, had an implementation of it that their initial Google um, chat applications used it as well. Yeah. And what ended up that. happening. Yeah. And when it, I think ultimately what ended up happening was, you know, you can't, you couldn't easily lock users into using only your product. The, the, the downside with XMPP is it's openness. Right. So if I'm yeah. a company that wants to lock someone in, any other company can create their own XMPP app and get their get people to switch over to it. And it doesn't matter, just like email, it doesn't, I don't have to care what provider you use for email or what client you use, but I mean, XMPP was like that. But then a number of companies, you know, that started, I think with the with phones in particular and tried to integrate. I mean, right now, if you look, look at talking about incompatibility, Facebook has three different messaging applications that they own that are incompatible with you. Right, that's true. Yeah. yeah. yeah and then they broke five. and they broke them apart. So, you know, if you're using the Facebook app, you the or maybe you're using the Messenger app, Facebook's not there and it's it's kind of it's too complicated. I mean, it, uh, somebody wants to send me a Facebook message, I'll tell them please just go to email, just send me an email. I don't I don't want to yeah. screw with this. Yeah, I mean, well, and that's something that's also something that we're we're trying to fix back in the old way that you would fix it. There's no reason other than proprietary um, vendor lock-in to, for you to have all those messaging applications. I mean, one of our, one of our focuses is our, our chat application is aiming to be a universal messenger. So uh, right now the support's pretty, is, is only like three, uh, three protocols, uh, SMS, um, XMPP, and Matrix. Um, because they're all open standards that we can mm -hmm. we can implement, uh, but there's a potential to expand that into all some of these proprietary networks. You can have there are free software clients for, um, and what what I want the future I want to see is I don't is to not have to remember which messaging application to use to talk to you versus someone else, but my computer is smart enough to know that, and so if you decide you want to use you know Facebook Messenger or whatever. Uh, my application doesn't have, I don't have to care. My application knows that's the medium through which I can talk to you and uses that when I send you a message. And when you reply, it shows up in my one, you know, single application that can multi-message all of these because in the end, they're not, you know, they're not doing anything too complicated. We're sending text, we're sending emojis, we're sending pictures. If you want to get fancy, we might be sending voice or video, but it's all, you know, what's happening across the wires is relatively universal. Um, and the interfaces usually are pretty similar. It's just the the implementations. Everyone reinvents the same the same wheel. 
Well, if you could solve that, I think, um, yeah, I don't know. I think you would be the greatest human it's a big one and, and, and it, it i mean it one of the greatest appointments for me is is that i mean it, like i kind of knew about free software in the 80s and really phil uh phil hughes who started the linux journal clued me into it you know early 90s and in fact linux journal was originally going to be the free software journal and then he discovered linus and then made it linus journal but which is smart but but i remember you know, really assuming in the mid nineties that the the advantages of, of open source, but especially what we're talking about now that are like of an XMPP that wait a minute, anybody can make, you know, you use the standard, anybody can make one of these things. They can compete on a level ground. Anybody can build on it. Um, it's kind of basically the lesson of TCP IP of HTTP, of, 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 of SMTP and IMAP, all of these protocols that, which really aren't that many. I mean, there aren't that many protocols that we've built a world on. And, and you would think, boy, wouldn't it be great to have more that we could build more worlds on? And, but the imperative to lock people in is so large that even smart companies like, like, like Google that are you know, started by open source geeks or people with that sensibility still want to still want to lock people in. And I, I guess maybe it's, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely or something else like that. But I'm, I'm disappointed that that the obvious is not apparent to them, that the whole we'd have a it's better to have a smaller percentage of something that's much, much bigger for everybody than the entire percentage of something that's a lot smaller, but only big for us. And that's kind of where we're at. No, it, I don't well, know. I and that's, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, well, it goes back to what you're saying about people competing on an, on the level playing field. You know, a lot of companies don't want to compete. They don't want that level, level playing, playing field, field no. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they they want whatever advantage they have. And if they have market dominance in one area or even a monopoly in one area, they would like to be able to use that dominance or monopoly to to, to make the playing field, you know, not, not level into their advantage. Yeah, Steve Ballmer many years ago, like in the mid '90s, said the key to success is to find a crossroad. <clears throat> Excuse me, to find a crossroads and set up a toll booth in the middle of it. I mean that, and and jeez, oh, <laughs> uh, and and they did that. You know, now they're a little bit more friendly to Linux, but I think it's only because it saved them a lot of money. You know, I mean that. Well, they had to be. They had yeah. to. They have to be friendly to Linux, or they would die. I mean, they. They saw the writing on the wall as far as selling software. I mean, one thing when I see a lot of companies now, you know, creating these open core models where they're talking about selling enterprise software, and I, I tell people, I said, look at Microsoft. You know, if if anyone knows how to sell software, it would be Microsoft. They yeah. you know, look at all of them, and and they're getting out of the game. What does that tell you about the future of selling software? You know, right. they they realized that the future was cloud services. And went all in on that future, and then, but then they had a problem where, uh, when they were trying to sell everyone to come over to their cloud future, everyone said, "Okay, great. Well, all of my Windows machines are there, but what about the ninety percent of the rest of my servers that are all running Linux?" You know, and they didn't like, "Oh, whoops, well, we have to have an answer for that." And so that's when they that's when they started harding Linux. They had to, because they weren't getting, they couldn't get everyone to move over to their cloud without it. Um, and now that you know, I. When people are skeptical of their embracing of Linux, I, I personally believe it. I think that they are 
following in IBM's footsteps uh, with the, all of that graffiti right. on the sidewalk that IBM did, right? They had to embrace it to survive. And so I think it's, you know, I think they truly believe what they're saying. Yeah, in the, in the case of IBM, they, I mean, they basically acknowledged the fact that Linux was huge inside their company already. I mean, and, there, and there, there was too much internal innovation going on around that, you know. They found like 13 million Samba servers where they thought they were running Windows, that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, I mean, just a ridiculous number of Samba servers that were basically Linux running on old Windows hardware. Um, but I mean, but getting this, but getting that sensibility out there, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's possible. I think it is possible because it's, it's worked before, but it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the tumblers in the lock need to line up. And uh, you, yeah, people have to feel the pain of the lock-in and then be presented with the, the freer alternative that, that it has to be convenient. That's, that's the other right. issue. And that's, you know, it's, one thing to say, well, all you have to do is, is get your geeky friend to, to take your laptop and do all of the stuff to it. Um, like that's not going to work. It never really has worked. What worked and what works is having something that's convenient and is already supported out of a box. You know, it's not easy to install Windows on a laptop, um, especially one that, you know, out of the, with, without um, all of these images and things from the vendor, it's difficult. Uh, no one, because no one really does it unless you're in IT. What, what matters for a person is, can I buy this from this vendor? Uh, will it work out of the box? And will they support it if there's a problem? Or I, don't, I need to figure out how to do something. That, I mean, that's ultimately what matters. And so, like, like in our case, our big focus is, can we make this as convenient as possible? And to me, having the same application run on your desktop as runs on your phone, as runs on your laptop, um, if you're an end user or if you're a developer, developing one application, knowing that it runs, you know, at, on any Linux environment and a phone, uh, is just way more convenient. And because we don't have the pressure, we don't have the requirement to have to try to lock people in. Um, it frees us to do all of these things that end up being better for the user anyway, uh, because we don't have this profit motive where we have to lock them in or else, you know, we're not maximizing shareholder value. So... On a completely well, on a bit of a tangent, does do, does a device like the the Librem Five have enough memory to say I don't know run Facebook in a VM or like I, let's say you let's say because you have pri privacy or security interests or maybe maybe because you don't want to give your kid an iPhone and <laughs> you trust your kid with this uh, with a, a Librem a little bit more because. We can talk about that later, but um, are they going? How how do they? You still have the problem that all all of their friends are going to communicate via Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp or whatever. So how do you how do you solve that problem? So a couple of different ways. So in for those protocols, in particular with messaging, if there if there is a way to um, to use that same standard without having to use their client, then we would the, the answer would be to incorporate it in the chatty or chat program as one as an, another plugin. Mm -hmm. um, so that's step one. Step two would be if those programs work with a web application, which most of them tend to, they have a web mm -hmm. version and then they have mm -hmm. a, a phone app, would be to run that in a phone in a uh, sort of compartmentalized web application. So where we already have it, where it's um, where uh, Epiphany, Gnome Web's application, has this 
feature where you can install a website as a web application. And essentially all it does is it creates a little sandbox oh. for it and runs it with its own cookie jar and its own set of settings and it's isolated from the other, any other web browsers on your system. Uh, so that would be, you know, option two. And then option three is there's starting to be a lot of progress. In fact, uh, even Canonical announced a service recently of allowing you to run Android applications isolated in the cloud and, and access them remotely. Um, and that's another avenue potentially that, that uh, you could use for certain applications where you can't run them any other way locally. Uh, but of course, that, the downside to that is it requires a cloud connection for that to work. And of course, I say, can you run Facebook in a VM? Because it's like a secret little uh, flashback to an article you wrote, I guess, years ago at this point, right? For Linux Journal. Oh, yeah. You, you don't usually use Facebook, but when you do, it's in a VM. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, and, and the thing is, I mean, that's really the same model we're looking at here, where um, in that case, I'm also isolating it in a VM, but, uh, you know, really sandboxing it into its own web browser where, you know, it never sees anything else is about as effective. I mean, the only extra thing I would do uh, for my, for Facebook in that article was I ran it over Tor, but of course right. that's also possible to do on, on a Libra 5 already. I mean, Tor works out of the box if you install it and turn it on. So, you know, that's also an option. So would you give your kid this phone? I mean, it, and why, why would giving your, giving a young person of whatever age is appropriate to give a cell phone. I don't, I don't know what that answer is, but assuming you know that, um, why would giving them a single device like this, other than the fact that you save money by only having to buy one device and perhaps they could, they could also use it as a, as a computer. Um, but what are the other advantages of giving a kid a device like this versus something more mainstream, like an Android phone or an iPhone? Well, so, Part of the question, as far as age, that's that's a per per parent decision. But exactly. so uh, yeah, right, of course. Uh, but it, when my kid is the correct age, yes, most definitely. In fact, I mean, the, the whole reason that Purism was founded as a company was to create a phone for Todd, the CEO's uh, daughters. Mm -hmm. uh, so he, um, they were, they were. Uh, young, not old enough for a phone yet, but he started realizing at some point they will be old enough for a phone. And he looked around and said, well, what am I supposed to give them? I don't want to give them any of these phones because they're all built on capturing all of their data and, and using all of that data and tracking them and all these other awful things. And so he didn't, so he realized, so his whole decision about founding the company was, well, I can solve this, but I can't start with a phone crowdfunding campaign because I need to show that I can deliver, build credibility, do all that. And so we started with the laptop first and then built, you know, a customer base, showed that we can, you know, you, we can deliver crowdfunding campaigns and things like that. And then eventually once that momentum was built, then went into the phone. So yeah, the, the whole genesis of, of not just this device, but even the whole company was built around providing a phone that's, that's appropriate for children to use. Because you have you have full control over it, both as a parent and as in the kid, uh, whether things are being tracked or not. You know, beyond the fact that we have no vested interest in spying on people, we are actively you know making sure that applications don't spy on people in the store that the PureOS store where people can submit applications. That's one of the criteria. Um, so yeah, I mean that's that's we 
we all think about that. That's one of our strong use cases that we think about a lot uh, is can you hand this to a kid and will that kid be safe? That's a, that's a, one of the, you know, one of the markets we were talking about markets earlier. We have quite a few people that want to buy the laptop for their kids uh, or the phone, but, but the laptop, for instance, because of the kill switches, they're concerned about is someone going to spy on my kid through their webcam when their laptop is uh, just sitting there on their desk pointing into their bedroom, you know? Um, and so the ability to flip, flip a switch and know that it's off is important. And the same thing goes for the phone. So, but you know, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I, um, I'm just thinking about it, the ways in which it's beneficial to, to a, you know, a younger audience. Like, you know, we, we're, I don't have any kids, so I don't have this, this same concern, but I feel like if I did, I would be very, very concerned about, people who are young today living their entire lives since birth in, in a world where every single movement is tracked and recorded and likely stored somewhere. And, you know, we had the benefit of growing up. I mean, we, you know, we grew up with computers, but, but we didn't carry one around with us and it didn't, it didn't have GPS and it didn't, you know, have a nice little map of every step we've ever taken. Um, and so I just, I, you yeah, know, I, I think about what yeah. what sort of digital f footprint are, are are is being built for every kid right now, and and you know, and and why is that bad? Well, and it's and it's beyond even the kid having a phone of their own. So uh, there's two different layers of this. There's one the kid who is not of age yet to understand the implications of their actions, doing things that now there's a permanent record of forever, you know. Mm -hmm. So there's that level. Then there's also the level of parents who don't understand the implications of their actions, publishing their entire kids' yes. lives from the from before they were born all the way, you know, to their to you know however old the parent lives, every everything they can possibly record being put online. And so I, you know, my approach to that as a parent, um, and, and as a parent who's concerned with their own privacy, much and even more so the privacy of my kid is I, I really think of it like his digital identity is a trust that I have been given stewardship over. And whatever digital footprint he has is, is my responsibility. And anything I put online about him, I think of it you know, 10 times more with more scrutiny than I do about my own things because I'm the only one facing the implication, I'm the main person facing the implications of what I share about myself. But what I share about him is something you know he will have to deal with long after I'm dead, and and for the rest of his life. And so you know, for instance, in my case, I don't post pictures of my son online. Uh, I've made a conscious decision because you can't unpost them once they're online. They're stored and in, indexed in facial recognition software, and every social media company is scanning them for for matches and all of that stuff now. Um, and so. Yeah, I try as much as possible to restrict that sort of thing because what I want is, you know, when he's an adult and is then uh, responsible enough to take over his identity, I can give it to him with as few scuffs on it as possible. And say, he, just like, like I said, just like a financial trust where the reason that if, you know, say a, a four-year-old now inherits, you know, some $2,000 savings bond, they don't just let the four-year-old blow it on a bunch of candy, you know, the, the parents, the steward of that until they're old enough to be able to handle, they consider they, they can handle that money responsibly. And, you know, that's one thing a person's online identity is the entire rest of their lives. You know, I mean, think about how many people 
in, you know, in office today, in public office, or celebrities, or people wanting to even, you know, have any sort of major position in a company, how often now um, someone finds a post or a video or a picture of them doing something in their youth that was questionable or doesn't, doesn't match with current norms on behavior, maybe matched at the time, but certainly doesn't now, um, and they face the consequences of their indiscretion back whenever they did it, you know? And yeah. we, we can't predict 30 years from now what um, will be considered acceptable behavior um, and definitely the kind of thing that you would post about your kid. I want, I want my kid when they're an adult to, you know, ha be, take responsibility of that themselves without me messing it up. Yeah, to me, that, that's, that's a major concern. I mean, I, I even worry, you know, <laughs> about my, my, uh, the, the messages I've left around the internet as an adult, that at some point, something's going to not be acceptable, who knows, but, but I think, so I think the conventional approach to this, the, you know, being a digital parent, I guess you might say, a parent of, of a child in the digital age, um, has been control, has been the, the emphasis on parental control rather than just the absence of data. Like, and which I think is completely wrong because, you know, as long as the data is there, as smart as you think you are, you probably aren't smart enough to, to, um, to keep it in a condition that it ought to be, whatever that means. But so could, could you talk a little bit about that? Like what, what is the difference between parental control versus just uh, eliminating the trail? Well, yeah, so uh, to me, I think, uh, so if I put my security hat on for a second, I think one of the most challenging uh, threat, threats to model for in terms of a determined attacker, there, they, there's two categories. One is a kid behind parental or school control firewall. And second is an employee behind company firewall. Uh, those are like the most determined attackers with unlimited time and resources to bear to the problem. Uh, so parental controls on all of these devices, I, I completely understand why, why they are there, but they're also this forever cat, cat and mouse game that essentially trains a generation of hackers. Because the first thing that happens is kids will try stuff and figure out what works around um, whatever those controls are. But the second thing is like you say, uh, the concern is, well, we're going to, we, we as uh, social media companies, let's say, or companies that make money off of people's data, we allegedly aren't allowed to collect that data um, if it's a minor or sell it in some cases as well as can step. But what we can do is we will put this behind parental controls where you can check, check a box and it's up to you now. The responsibility is on you as to what's shared and what's not and what's allowed and what's not. And then when it gets posted, one way or the other, then it's used. And again, like I said, when it's posted, it's out of your control now. Um, even if you later decide to delete something, nothing's really ever deleted on the internet anymore uh, because storage is cheap. So yeah, so our approach is to, <laughs> yeah, yeah. our approach is more to give people uh, control over their data as much as possible. One way is to, to not mine it ourselves and not have a profit motive that, that would encourage us to to capture that data and to capture as little as possible to give. We also, because we're not interested in vendor lock-in, that you know, if, if your goal was to lock someone in to your product, then you don't want them to have any, you want them to have as little autonomy as possible, a little control over either your software, your hardware, whatever it is. If you want to give users the maximum amount of control and 
and are opposed to vendor lock-in, then they get to decide what happens to their files. And they, they can decide that whether they want to share it or not, but it's, an, it's informed consent in that case. They've chosen to share it instead of it, it just accidentally, whoops, you happen to share, you happen to back up a file, but you didn't realize it was now being stored on, on someone else's cloud and then synced across five devices. So that brings up an interesting point. So something that I've, I've actually, I've seen a little bit of chatter here and there, but so we're in the middle of this pandemic and, and schools are, are still not completely, but, but depending on your area, largely still being conducted online. So I feel like as a parent, regardless of your, your level of concern about privacy, you're to an extent you're being forced to use certain tools. So how do you balance um, the need to use whatever tool the, the school is uh, providing or, or, you know, using, how do you balance that with your, your privacy concerns? I, I feel like there must be a conflict there because I don't know. I don't know what all schools are using, but I suspect there are parents are being asked to use software with their kids that maybe you wouldn't be comfortable with. And maybe a lot of our audience wouldn't be comfortable with. And how do you deal with that? Oh yeah. I mean, in my case, so there's two, there's, sort of two categories. So, but in my case, I more or less have to hold my nose and live with it. Um, so I'm, I'm one of those, I'm, I'm in a school district where the kids are all handed iPads and the entire, the entirety of the school curriculum is funneled through a couple of school applications that are on that managed iPad. And so my approach is essentially compartmentalization where almost like you would if you worked at a company that forced you to use a Windows laptop and you didn't want to or whatever, where all of my work stuff is on this computer. None of my personal stuff gets on this computer and it's just for when I'm at work, that sort of thing. So same thing here where this is his school iPad. I treat it like as though, I mean, he had to use it in, when he was in school um, and I treat it like that. Now there's a different challenge for school districts that have standardized on Chromebooks. I ended up writing a post this week on the subject uh, because it was, it was sort of inspired by, I was uh, reading through this Washington Post laptop guide, buyer's guide for, for parents that needed to buy a, a computer for their kids for school districts that don't provide them. And it was the same sort of thing you would normally expect. If you're giving a laptop to a kid, you probably want something very inexpensive that's almost disposable. But what was interesting about this guide, unlike some of the others I've seen, is that he took a blunt and critical view of Chromebooks because of the data mining that happens, but they're incredibly popular in education because one, there's a big marketing apparatus around it. And two, they're incredibly inexpensive. Yeah, and they're cheap. The school, yeah, yeah, and schools need to have centralized IT and groupware and that sort of thing anyway. And there's this great G Suite solution for a lot of those problems where people, you know, kids can share documents and all of that. But the, the problem is there's these there's huge privacy concerns because obviously you have this company that makes money off of data now getting all of this data about children. So, uh, you know, California, for instance, passed what on the surface looked like pretty strict privacy laws along these lines, uh, but there's these gigantic loopholes in them. And so I ended up writing a blog post this week talking about some of those loopholes. So for instance, the, the big one is that the privacy law uh, defines two categories of data. Um, all of the restrictions that you read about, you can't profit from the data, all of that, is in this category of pupil records. And so those are things that are specifically identified the, the pupil by name, essentially. And you, you read these very strict privacy rules and you're like, okay, well, the kid's protected. But then 
there's the exceptions. There's this other category that all the things that aren't tuple records, and essentially that's everything that they can de-identified. So they remove identifying information from the people that target them as a, as a specific person. Um, all of that's fair game. So uh, what that uh, includes is including selling, uh, marketing and selling that data and using it for ads. Uh, so you can think of it almost like dem it becomes demographic data. So we're talking about things like if you have a Chromebook, if your kid has a Chromebook for school and then browses the web, they're allowed to capture all of that web browsing session data, all that information and monetize it and use it as demographic data for what a 10-year-old likes to do on the internet or a 13-year-old likes to do on the internet. As long as they don't link it to an individual, they can, of course, again, have all of the value that comes from it being demographic data, just like in the article, I liken it to imagine if Hasbro came to your school and said, we will give you all these educational tools um, and toys, but in, in return, we, need, we want to come in and have a focus group every couple of weeks where we have kids come in and we won't, we won't identify them by name, but we're going to focus group some of our brand new toys that are in R&D, and that's their you know, terms of our deal. And that's essentially what's happening with Chromebooks in school. So the other really scary loophole, beyond the fact that they can capture all of the data as long as they quote unquote, de-identify it, is that the moment is that because uh, the, the law wanted to have this good natured approach to allowing the student to have access to their data after they leave. So they're, again, to try to avoid vendor lock-in, uh, the student, when, when you're no longer a student, say you graduate, but you want all of the, um, all of your essays and all of the things that you created in school, they're required to allow you to export those to a different account. So on the service, that seems great. But in the case specifically with Chromebooks, what that means is the students now is allowed to transfer all of that data to their personal Google account. And the moment that they do that, one, there's linkage between the old and the new. And two, now Google is, is free to do all the standards that, that they could already do with, with the student, with the data when it wasn't student data, because it's now linked to a personal account. Well, that's troubling and problematic. <laughs> so I, I, something I'd like to touch on is, is that there's an assumption that we've had for about 25 years that consent only goes one way. In other words, we're always consenting to what the castle's uh, terms are. And we could turn those around. In fact, we're working on that. There's a, a IEEE uh, working group that I'm part of. In fact, I started it called 7012 for machine-readable privacy terms, uh, a standard for machine-readable privacy terms that you and I assert, which I think is, works best in exactly the kind of situation that you're, you and the purism people are, are crafting up, where you start with the assumption that this is a free and independent individual who is carrying their own methods of, of asserting this is okay and that's not okay. These are the conditionalities around how my data ought to be used. And I think that that could solve a lot of problems with schools, could solve a lot of problems with companies, could solve a lot of problems with, with a lot of other things. Because if, if we're thinking of it entirely as we are always at the mercy of the terms that are proffered by, by the castles of the world, then we're always going to be locked inside them to some degree. And I don't want to go far down that, but I'm just like putting it out there because it's something I'm working on. <laughs> so. Well, well, and you know, I'm, um Along those lines, you know, what, what you're also talking about is the importance of having to opt in for, to data collection and, and monetization. Instead of right now, all of our, everything is opt out. They, right. the, the default yeah. is 
capturing everything that human is humanly possible, and you have to find the checkbox somewhere. Um, and so, you know, purism ended up getting itself involved in recent California privacy legislature uh, legislative session on this topic because it was a privacy law that was just passed last year. Yeah, the CCPA. Attempted. Yeah, and so um, in that the one of the provisions that did not make it to the final draft, but was in the earlier drafts was to, to make opt-in a requirement. And the big tech companies all lobbied heavily, heavily, heavily against that, saying that it would destroy their industry. Um, yeah, and it should. It should destroy their industry. It's a bad industry. It doesn't matter how much money it makes. It's a bad industry. And yeah, and, and the, the, the new, I, I, I took a look at it. The EFF crapped all over it, but without saying outright that they don't, uh, that they're going to take a position on it. But the, there's a follow-up to that law that's going to be a proposition uh, in the next election in California. And I'm against it. I, and normally I'm for something that's calling itself privacy, but this one's really complicated and not good. And I, don't, I, can't, I wish I could say why, but just look up the, what the EFF says about it. Yeah, I mean, to me, to me making it the opt-in would solve a lot of, a lot of problems because if you if every time you're doing something you you have to say yes i want you to collect all of my data and sell it and you can say no then you will probably say no yeah and but so many are so defaulted right now to and this by the way is especially on the phones i mean if you're there's so many places you know somebody sent me a link hey you got to check this out and here's this article and and it'll say please you know you have to accept our terms I, I, you know uh to spy on you uh, in order for you to read this. So you're like, come on, you know, that's, yeah, like what, that's opt out. Why does and, my, yeah. Well, Go ahead. Or like, why does my flashlight app need access to my contact list and my location? <laughs> you know, right. With the flashlight. Right. Well, I think we're, um, we, I think we've we're done at a lot. wrap up point. Yeah. We, I just looked at the time. <laughs> so um, I don't know. Any parting thoughts? I think we've covered a lot. So uh, I, I think that, that what purism has and what Kyle's working on is, is kind of a beachhead, you know, it, it's a little, I mean, it's a terrible metaphor in a way, but a, a beachhead in almost the military sense, you know, they're, they're the ones waging the assault on the beach on our behalf. And I think uh, it's important work. It's important work. And it's, and it's, what's really important about it is where it's coming from. It's coming from uh, our independence and our need for independence as individuals and, and, organizing a computing and communication world around that, that is our devices that are in compliance with us and work for us in a consistent way. Uh, and we can't get there. We can't get there. The, the Apple way and the Microsoft way and the Google way aren't going to get us there. They're just not. And, but this will. And it's, to me, it's, it's kind of a, an almost binary choice whether or not we're going to go for that or not. So I salute it. I do too. Thanks, Kyle. Yeah, Again, thanks, Kyle. This is great. Filling us in on all the cool things.